Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Thursday night, love them or not, hot cross buns are popular on bakery shelves at this time of year. But where do they come from? We head all the way to St. Albans in England and an origin story that dates back 650 years to 1361 and a recipe that really is still being used to this day to create the Alban Bun, which is more popular than ever, it turns out. Recent advances in AI, artificial intelligence through such products as ChatGPT4 and others has awed many and scared more than a few. Now a group of AI experts and industry executives are calling for a six-month pause in developing more powerful systems, citing potential risks to society and humanity. Is it advice we should heed? Ozempic is a drug you may have heard a lot about recently. The diabetes medication has seen a surge in popularity as a weight loss product, and a growing number of Americans are taking advantage of cheaper prices for pharmaceuticals in Canada and buying it here. Now, BC is cracking down, moving to limit sales to non-Canadians over concerns about shortages. Are those legitimate? But first, crews in Quebec are busy trying to restore power after a surprise spring ice storm knocked down trees and knocked out electricity to more than a million customers over the past 24 hours. Environment Canada says 40 millimeters of precipitation fell on Greater Montreal on Wednesday alone, much of it freezing rain. And for many, it is a reminder of another massive ice storm that hit the province 25 years ago this year. Let's start in Quebec tonight. Uh, My hometown in Montreal is... uh, Experiencing a bit of deja vu today for early April is odd, of course, hit by a huge ice storm yesterday. Uh, Crews are busy trying to restore power ahead of the long weekend after that surprise storm knocked out electricity to more than a million customers at the height of it. Environment Canada said about 40 millimeters of precipitation fell on the greater Montreal area on Wednesday much of it freezing rain. You may remember back to 1998, 25 years ago now, uh, what that might look like. But if you've seen the pictures today, it coated tree limbs, breaking branches, uh, tumbling, them on, tumbling them down onto power lines, streets, cars. A man was killed, unfortunately, when, uh, when chopping down a tree, hit by a branch. It also led to flooding in some areas. The same storm has hit parts of eastern Ontario. It moved into the Maritimes today. But Montreal is really where all the focus is tonight. Quebec's Premier Francois Legault says he was surprised by how fast the damage spread. Yesterday afternoon, we thought that uh, it would be all right. And after a few hours, there were seven, eight 800,000 people without electricity. I was in Quebec City, so I I noticed that it wasn't that bad in Quebec. But in the uh, large Montreal and in Outaouais, uh, it was terrible. Yeah, uh, Hydro-Quebec says it expects to restore power to be between 300 and 350,000 clients by the end of today. 70 or 80% of those affected by the end of tomorrow, but it still means some people are going to be in the dark for quite a while. I was talking to my dad today. Their power was off. It had been off since noon yesterday. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, of course, his riding is in Montreal. He was there today to survey the damage and had this to say. You know, seeing all these beautiful trees uh, down, seeing uh, uh, lives disrupted, seeing uh, seeing the challenges that uh, I know people are going to be facing today and, and for uh, uh, what will be a difficult Easter weekend for uh, a number of families. Uh, obviously, it's uh, there's never a good time for this, but uh, it's a moment when we, where we pull together and, and try and be there for each other. Well, joining me now from Montreal is Global National Correspondent Mike Armstrong, who covered this today. He covered the ice storm 25 years ago as well, so we have lots to talk about. Mike, thank you. It can't possibly have been 25 years ago. It can't possibly have been 25. I was, read, I was reading what you had written for the 25th anniversary about going to see her, doing the story on your grandparents, all that stuff. What was it, what was it like today? I mean, it felt like it just kind of, I was talking to my dad earlier, and he was saying it just kind of snuck up. No one really expected it to hit like this. No, they, it was very strange because uh, working for Global National yesterday, I sort of flagged. Uh, I lost power at home at about noon, and I, I was actually right. going to work from home. Uh, and then um, I, when I lost power, I lost internet, I said, well, I'll go to the office. So I, w- I drove down to the office, and then I watched the numbers just rise from uh, you know 50,000 to 80,000 to 100,000 people with no power, 200,000 people. And then by the evening, it, it, it had just exploded, uh, and there was no power all over. I mean, my family lives in, a lot of my family lives in Ottawa, and they had no power at that point. So it really hit a wide area, and and it's been a little surreal today. And I'm t- anybody who's of a certain age who was around to remember the '98 ice storm 
is having a little bit of uh, deja vu. There's no question about it. That said, this is not as severe as that that was. There are big differences. The, the major difference was that the 98 storm really hit those big 750 kilovolt transmission lines. Uh, here we're talking about really the distribution lines, the ones that go to houses and neighborhoods and things like that. That's the big problem this time. They don't have to rebuild giant towers. So we're, we're probably talking about days, not weeks, as it was in 98. Not weeks, like last time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was looking at the pictures. Anyone who knows those areas of, of Montreal, specifically in the West End and so on, there's a lot of power lines that are still above ground. So when the trees, when the branches start to fall, that's where they land. Yeah. it's a, I mean, Hydro-Quebec and the Premier talked about that today, that it's just not feasible to think that we would ever be able to decide to do something different with our uh, transmission line, excuse me, uh, distribution lines and bury them all, as is the case in you know, a lot of neighborhoods, even in Ottawa, uh, have buried lines. But it's just a little too late to do that in Quebec. It would just be, it's cost prohibitive. Um, but yeah, we just, we watched a lot of them go down today. Hydro-Quebec has spent a lot of money on sort of, I think they refer to it as their vegetation issue, where they go right. and they make sure that trees aren't too close to lines but obviously, a lot of lines, when the trees got all the weight from the ice, they just sort of creeped closer and closer, and some collapsed on power lines, others just touched them, you know, uh, all sorts of, everything that could happen did happen, basically. Yeah, when I think back to 98, when I was in Montreal, for me, it was the sound. It was the sounds of things, like, it's that crackling, and I was wondering if you heard that again a bit today, well, in the last 24 hours. Yeah, today was a little weird, um, I would say. Yesterday, you heard the trees cracking last night and things like that. Yeah, absolutely, no no doubt about it. I had one gentleman today we talked to. He said he lost power at 6 o'clock. Uh, he went outside at about 7, and he said the trees were cracking like uh, a war zone. Like, it sounded like gunshots. There were so much wow. of them. Today, walking in a lot of these neighborhoods, it it was um, sunny, but it, was it warm, sounded right? like it was raining. But it was, yeah, yeah. it warmed up. It was uh, 7, 8 degrees, something like that. But it was it raining basically. All the tr all this ice was melting off the trees, so that was a little bit strange. Now at night, I'll tell you, uh, it does remind you of the '98 ice storm because there's a darkness that you you don't see. Um, you know, there's no light pollution in the sky. Uh, I look at the houses. I'm outside my house right now, and I look at all the other houses. I see one light down the street for some reason. I'm not sure why they why they've got that one light. <laughs> But but it's a, it's a fairly complete darkness. And I'll tell you this, this is going to sound strange, but what it reminds me of is Haiti after the earthquake. Right. Where there was no electricity, and then you just see light, you know, car lights come down a street, and it, it feels different. Like those car lights uh, fill the whole street. It's very strange. Yeah, that, that darkness that we're just, we, we forget how unused we are to darkness, right? I noticed in yeah. your piece today that, that you filed that there were, I mean, clearly these days it knocked out cell towers as well. I mean, debit card machines weren't working. People were having to sort of scramble back to a different era today. Speaking of 1998. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you're exactly right. Uh, as a matter of fact, this evening I went out to, to buy some, look, we have a ban on fireplaces in Montreal, so you're not allowed to burn wood in your fireplace. Um we had one or two logs just in case this happened. But now we've run out and our house is getting a little cold. So we drove to a couple of places, finally found some logs, you know, those wood-burning logs that you can buy that last for two hours or whatever. Uh, we went to a few different places, finally found some. But the stores we went to were cash only because debit cards weren't working. Then we walked to the mall just, uh, to buy some cough syrup uh, for my wife. And... There was, it was, even in the mall, it was cash only in most places, but this was what was really surreal in the mall. Um, people charging their phones, iPads, laptop, mobile chargers, you name it. And basically, every plug in the middle of the mall, this is Fairview Shopping Center, for those who know the West Island of Montreal, um, right. every plug, you know these plugs in the ground where you sort of, you, you pick yeah. up the metal cover, yeah, so... Basically, everywhere there were those plugs in the floor, they had put tables and then extension cords and power bars. And so people were plugging in their phones and just standing around. Uh, well, that's no, that's probably, nice of them. Yeah, probably a good 150, 150 people in the middle of the mall. But then also other spots in sort of the other parts of the mall, uh, people were doing the same thing. I have a son who works in a restaurant there, and it was basically oh, cool. like Christmas today. The mall was just packed with people. 
Mike, I mean, how long is it going to take them to fix all this? Because it sounds like it's a lot of little, my dad was saying, there's a lot of little isolated issues here. So there's a lot of repairs to do. I mean, it's not as disastrous as it was 25 years ago when whole, you know, distribution uh, systems were knocked out, but uh, transmission systems rather, but this is going to take some time to fix all these little fires. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the number of customers that are without power has actually gone down. I checked before going right. on air. So we're, we're about 1.1 uh, million. We're down to about 707,000 customers now. But the number that's going up are the, is the number of interruptions. So the, the things right. that have to be repaired as the crews go out, they're finding more and more problems that have to be fixed. Their people are calling in more and more problems, uh, things like that. So yeah, there, 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 there are a lot of things that have to be repaired. Uh, what's interesting is how they're prioritized. Um, it's the same in uh, with Ottawa Hydro and Ontario Hydro uh, and Hydro-Quebec. They, they try and first target um, interruptions that are going to affect the most number of the highest number of people. So, uh, for example, there was one in uh, Ontario today where there were uh, 20 interruptions that, have, that they were able to fix uh, that affected 40,000 people. So that's what they right. go after first. The problem then becomes, you know, the, sort of the further out you are, the more remote you are, the longer it's going to take to get power. So this is going to drag on for some people for quite a while. Yeah. I was thinking back, I was reading your 25th uh, anniversary remember, memories of, of the ice storm in 98 and how some of those areas went five weeks. Your grandparents, you did a lovely story on them, uh, were in Granby. That was also one of those areas that went weeks and weeks and weeks without power. So uh, it does bring back memories, even though it's, you're right, it's not the same. It was January then, it's April now. So it's going to be warm. It's very different. But wow, it does bring back a lot of memories. Yeah. Yeah, remember what that area was called, the south shore of Montreal, the Saint-Césaire, Saint-Jean-Sauvage-Lieu, and Granby, the tri- Triangle of Darkness. That's it, right. As you say, it, it took weeks and weeks to come back. Um, now, the worst hit area this time around had 30 to 35 millimeters um, of ice uh, accumulation, according to Environment Canada. Back then, in 98, it was up to 130 millimeters in some areas. Yeah. That's why those those giant towers went down. They Basically, once one went down, it pulled the other ones that were already under pressure. And, yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. The Army had to be called in in that case. Um, it, was, it was, you know, there was a school I remember visiting where the kids actually were taken to B.C. Uh, for That's a couple right. of weeks. Like, yeah, it was very strange. Yeah, they, there was, they had some great name, like Operation Escape the Ice or something, and they sent them to BC <laughs> for a few weeks. I remember going back into that area, the Triangle of Darkness, nine, you know, a year later, to, or I think maybe even five years later, in 2003, to meet kids that had been born as a result of that time. Kids had been conceived during the Triangle of Darkness. <clears throat> and it was yeah. one of those stories that someone came up with. But yeah, what a time, what a time. 25 years, though. Um, I guess tonight, there must be, I mean, it's not warm, right? And there, there are elderly and so on who must be feeling i remember we struggled to try to get my grandmother out of her house she refused to leave uh in 1998 <laughs> there must be some of that going on tonight too yeah it's uh it is uh warmer now than it was yesterday uh this evening driving around it was uh, about eight degrees actually in the evening uh but the temperature is going to drop to somewhere about minus two overnight so the longer this lasts uh, the more the temperatures drop uh, in people's houses. So in Montreal, there are six shelters, uh, charging stations that have been set up for people to go in, charge phones if they want to get, get warm, possibly even stay overnight. Another four north of the city in Laval. Uh, but yeah, the longer this goes on, the more people will probably, probably be using those uh, services. Yeah, and I guess a lot of people, I mean, this is this is a long weekend. People were looking forward to getting stuff done. It's Passover, Ramadan, and Easter weekend. There's all kinds of things that are going to be uh, canceled, I would think. Yeah, well, I mean, people people are off tomorrow. And, for example, in my neighborhood, cell phone service is spotty, uh, and the power's out. There really isn't much to do uh, on your day off to, tomorrow, except maybe read a book, as my son said to me. Uh, that's not funny when I suggested that. So. <laughs> that's not funny. I had someone mention that yesterday. I'm like, you could just pretend to scroll on your on your on your what your yeah. your, your dead phone, right? You just stand there yeah. and sort of try to make it work again. Mike, uh, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. I know it's been a really long day for you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope the power comes back on soon for you. Thank you for that. Always a pleasure, Ben. This nursery rhyme. 
uh, that, again, many learned to play on the recorder, including Talia Miller, our tech producer. One a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. Appears in the English nursery rhyme, hot cross buns, published in the London Chronicle on June, in June of 1767. So it goes back a really long way. Of course, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it's a pretty straightforward answer. A hot cross bun is a spiced bun usually made with fruit, marked with a cross on top, which has been traditionally eaten on Good Friday. Now, if you look at the origin story, and this is kind of what I was interested in, the Greeks in the 6th century AD may have marked cakes with a cross. The pagan Saxons baked buns marked with a cross at the beginning of spring. But the predominant origin story of the hot cross bun actually begins a little bit later um, in St. Albans in England, where in 1361, about 650 years ago, Brother Thomas Rodcliffe, a 14th century monk at St. Albans Abbey, developed a similar recipe called an Alban bun. And he gave those buns out to the poor on Good Friday. Now, of course, nowadays, fast forward 650 years, we now have the hot cross bun. It's available just about every, I mean, you can find them at any time of the year these days. And now they come in a whole bunch of fancy flavors. Marks and Spencer's, of course, in the UK, did an ad to show off their collection. M&S has a hot cross bun for everyone this Easter. For the traditionalists, they have these luxury fruited hot cross buns. For the cheese heads, extremely cheesy hot cross buns. Oh, look at that. For the chocoholics, there's the extremely chocolatey hot cross buns. And for the trendsetters amongst us, the innovators and trailblazers, there's the new banoffee hot cross buns. Filthy. And for those who don't like hot cross buns, uh, try a crumpet or something. These are not just hot cross buns. These are M&S hot cross buns. Banoffee. Wow, man, that's really, that's a long way from the hot cross buns of my childhood from Logan's Bakery in Montreal. Um, but we really wanted to, so they've gotten all fancy over the years and now they're all trendy. But we wanted to go back to the very untrendy origins of the Alban bun, the apparent birthplace, St. Albans, uh, just north of London. And 650 years later, they're still making those same Alban, Alban buns following, in many ways, the same recipe that Brother Thomas used back in the 14th century. And thanks to a resurgence in popularity of baking and specifically baking shows, it turns out they're more popular now than they've ever been. The recipe is still a very closely guarded secret. When I emailed them to say, hey, would you like to talk about this? And gave them, they wanted a few of the questions. They're like, we can't talk about what's in them. I'm like, I get it. I get it. It's a, it's a state secret. So they're sworn to secrecy about the recipe. They're happy to talk about the success and the pride in having carried on this tradition for so very long. And they're only too happy to talk about that. Lucy Hacker is with Abbott's Kitchen at St. Albans Cathedral in St. Albans, England, home, of course, of the 650-year-old Alban Bun. Lucy, thank you for, thanks for your time tonight. And you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I gather these are busy days for for you. Oh, incredibly, absolutely. Um, it's uh, busy days for me, and definitely busy days for my two bakers that I've got on site. I think they're they're sick of the sight of them by now. I think. Yeah, I mean, you, you do sell an awful lot of the Alban bun, right? I mean, it's it's. Um, tell me yeah. about it because it's been on sale. It's on sale throughout Lent and right through to Easter Monday. Is that right? It is. So um, last year alone, so from the 2020-something of February through to just a few days after Easter, we sold 11,000 in total. Wow. Um, so we are looking to break that record this year, which I'm I'm very pleased to say that we're very close to, um, which is a, an amazing achievement for, for me and everybody on site. Um, but they've just they just get busier and busier. We've had our um, we've had the BBC in a couple of times this this past couple of weeks to oh, wow. film segments and, and and with celebrities. So it's it's absolutely <laughs> gone crazy over here. It is. I mean, you could pre-order them and everything, right? Like there's there's a queue to get them now. There is, yeah. I mean, I get, honestly, Ben, I get uh, Instagram messages in the middle of the night from people saying, can I have some buns? Can I pick some up tomorrow? It's uh, There's definitely a market for them. It is. And yet, what a remarkable story. Uh, and it, and it, you're carrying on a tradition that now dates back, uh, what, 700, 700 plus years back to the 1300s? Yeah, yeah back to um, 1361 is when it started. So we're um, we're doing our best to sort of keep it as authentic as possible. Uh, whilst using of, sort of um, modern ingredients. 
So a little bit about them. So they used to, the originals used to use grains of paradise, which you'll probably know now as cardamom. Right. Um, so I can tell you that much. Unfortunately, um, going into without going into too much detail, um, the recipe is quite old, as you can probably imagine. So we slightly adapted it to to make them last a tiny bit longer than they did back then. But we are obviously stuck with the recipe we've got yeah. but they're very nice i like them um they're not as sweet as your as your traditional hot cross buns are now that you get from the supermarket which quite a lot of people prefer really yeah it, and, and the recipe itself is, is is a closely guarded secret i know tell me a bit about the history because it does go back to sir thomas uh, rodcliffe uh, right around where you're standing right now Indeed, yes. So um, he actually ran the cafe or the the refectory, as it's known here, back in back in the 14th century. Um, and he used to give them out to the poor on Good Friday, um, which for us um, is tomorrow, which is mm-hmm. very exciting. Uh, unfortunately, we don't we don't give them out to the poor, but we do have quite a few large events, uh, such as today. We we had an event for 500, which everyone had an Auburn bun, and a few people did didn't take theirs so sort of following on from that tradition we do um we do donate them to the local homeless shelters as well to sort of you know continue on that tradition as much as we can really so so yeah so it's it's come a long way um obviously for the past 700 years um but we're we're still here and they're again growing in popularity yeah how did they survive that that such such a stretch i imagine there were ups and downs historically in terms of what was uh, what was in favor and what was not how did the alban bun manage to manage to make it through the centuries i mean it's been it's been difficult and obviously there have been changes in um changes in, in ingredients um, as much as we we try to keep it authentic there are things in there that we have to change just to keep up with modern standards and and the uh, the modern food industry over here but the recipe was actually found on a card the original recipe written down by brother Thomas was was found when they were renovating in 2018 okay um, which was really? a, a massive yes yeah, so which was a um, a massive find obviously we had the the recipe written down from a very long time ago but his original handwritten recipe was found when they were digging up everything from from the crypt so oh, in 2018 how remarkable yes. how remarkable you it had lasted all these years and yet there it was yeah. sitting in hiding for all these years yeah absolutely so so yeah it's just it's it's just developed from there really and we've we've managed to keep it to keep it going and um yeah that's what do, what do they what do they what do they taste like? I mean, I've had a hot cross bun. I think we've all had hot cross buns at some <laughs> point, or many of us. Some people like them, some people don't. Uh, yeah. But but just in terms of its consistency, and you, obviously it's not as sweet as you mentioned. It wouldn't have been, right? No, it wouldn't have been as sweet, um, and it still isn't. It's um, you get the sweetness from the currants without giving too much away. They're very very light and airy um, due to the amount that we prove them, because obviously we're using just plain flour, which I can tell you. Yes. Um, so obviously there are techniques within the baking that, that make them sort of rise and they're really light and fluffy. But also the, the method that we use, we, the currants don't break during the baking process, which means that the sweetness from them is still intact. So again, they're not as sweet until you bite into them um, and get a mouthful of currants. So they are slightly different. Some people don't like it. Um, some people prefer them to the modern day ones. So, you know, it's a real mixed bag. Um, yeah. So. Uh, tell me a bit about the about the relationship between the Albert bun and the hot cross bun, because they're sort of seen as the spiritual father or the spiritual uh, predecessor of the hot cross bun itself. But there are slight differences without going into the recipe. They look different, right? A little bit. Yes, they do. So they haven't got the the famous cross that you've got um, on your modern day hot cross buns, um, which is a little bit the, the sort of white cross that goes through the middle. Um, they've got none of that. Um, it's simply a score through that that creates a cross, um, and you get a few little peaks on on some again down to the proving process. That's the main difference between them is um, the sweetness, the spices that we use. And the fact that ours haven't got a cross on them. 
and yet, and, and yet the relationship, even as a baker, I imagine the relationship is still there, right? It's often seen, Brother Thomas's recipe from 1361 is often seen sort of as the uh, other buns have existed, but it's sort of seen as the, as the, as the predecessor of the modern hot cross bun. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's sort of their their tagline, if you will, um, for for them. So no, there's definitely still the connection there. Um, obviously, if you go, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but if you go into the supermarkets here, they do chocolate ones, they do cheese ones. Yeah, yeah. The other day they, that had. Um, gin in it and i just thought gin, you know, i'm not so sure I'm, I'm not, i like i like the plain old ones but yeah you can't go wrong with chocolate but i like the plain old ones so, lucy i mentioned you were telling you just how popular they, they've become of late and part of this has to do with someone i think canadians know well too mary berry of the yeah, great british yeah. bake-off she she kind of talked about the alban bun in 2016 and then kaboom so to speak yeah absolutely um and it ended up on loose women a couple of years ago um during the lockdown which is a very popular show over here um and then like i said recently we've had we've had two visits from the bbc in the last couple of weeks alone um again with a, another great british bake-off star bryony who was i right. don't think she, i think she was a finalist but she didn't win back in 2018 um so she actually came on site last friday and baked with us which was oh, wow. fantastic and again, to to film a segment that came out just this morning, which was really great to see. But it's just it has just blown up with popularity, and it's mad. <laughs> it's yeah, how do you? Like, I mean, you know, how do you keep up? How do you keep up with it? Because I, I'm, you must look ahead to sort of this whole period with a certain amount of pride and a lot of a lot of kind of trepidation. Absolutely, there's a little bit of anxiety in there somewhere as well. Um, luckily, I've got an absolutely fantastic team behind me. I've got Grace, who has been baking them since 2018, and Elliot as well, who's been with us for a couple of years now. Good. And they're very dedicated. They come in in the early mornings before anyone else is there. And it's an absolutely amazing atmosphere in the cathedral. When you come in in the morning, you hear the choir boys singing and it radiates through the entire place. Um, and it's just beautiful. And then they get cooking in the kitchen. So you've got the lovely smell of it going around, which I'm sure your viewers can uh, can imagine. Just imagine, um, yeah. How yeah, many, yeah. How, I mean, it, they must, do they have to swear to secrecy for, because this recipe is such a well-guarded, well-guarded they secret? They do, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't make them take a blood oath or anything, <laughs> but I certainly have to drill into them that they are not to, to share this recipe out. So, but they're, 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 you know, completely understanding and they, they love doing it. And Grace is an incredibly passionate baker and, yeah. and everybody can, knows that they come from here anyway. And everyone knows they can distinct between Elliot and Grace's sometimes as really? well. Really? So, so each, each of the yeah. Alban Bun has their signature. Has anyone ever tried to, so, I mean, I, I gather on the Great British Bake Off, or, or not even, but they tried to sort of replicate them. People have tried to replicate. Do they ever come close? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, the BBC did ask me for the recipe multiple times. But obviously, I had to say had no. To say no. Um, they keep asking, though. They keep asking. They do. They do. They were very <laughs> persistent. Um, um, but it's, yeah, it's a secret recipe. I mean, my hands are tied uh, very much so. I do not like to get Grace into any trouble at all. No. But, um, but people have tried um, to, to replicate them. But again, it's the, you know, it's the sweetness that, people look for in a, in a modern hot day hot cross bun these days um which is not which is not what we we produce in the cafe it's um, remarkable so few things are secret these days it's remarkable that the recipe yeah. has, sta has stayed that way you can find almost anything if you google it but not the alban bun recipe <laughs> doesn't exist no no you can't i mean there's a few there's a few things on that we obviously have to have to declare that are in there because of um sort of allergies and things like that mm -hmm. but again it's it's mainly the the way that grace makes them and the, the proving and other things that are that i won't mention that's the sort of secret part of it um so even if they had the recipe they wouldn't necessarily know the method to to make them anyway so that's yeah. sort of our um our, you know what we stand I by I hate to put you on the spot, Lucy, but you're gonna—you knew I'd ask you this question. Between an Alban bun and a hot cross bun, what's yours? What's your favorite? Oh, you know what? I like the Alban bun. Um, 
every every year it comes around, Ben, I think, oh, now here we go again. You know, I've got to beat last year's record and I'm going to be w- woken up in the middle of the night by people asking me for a pack oh, of organ so but, yes. <laughs> but you know what? They are, they are fantastic. Um, they're really light and they're really airy. And I think it's because they're not that sweet. They're, they're a lot easier to, to eat, in my opinion. Um, yeah. But I would say that. And, they're, and, they sell, and they, of course, they're selling like hotcakes. So I guess, uh, no, no pun intended, I guess when, when people bite into that next hot cross bun, maybe they should think back uh, yeah. to uh, Brother Thomas and, and the fact that this tradition, so few traditions continue for so long, that this tradition uh, now, you know, seven, almost 650 years old continues. Yeah, absolutely. It's They can think back to, to good old uh, Brother Thomas in his little kitchen in St Albans making these bun for the intention of giving him to the poor on Good Friday. And, and you're still in the same area? You're still essentially doing the same thing here we are, 2023. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lucy Hacker, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's busy. I appreciate it. No problem. It's been great. There was some big news on the uh, well on the energy front heading into this week. First, OPEC Plus had a surprise production cut announced over the weekend, and of course, on April the first, uh, the carbon tax went up. Uh, so we were wondering how that might affect everything—the price of energy in Canada, more or less. So, to begin with, the OPEC uh, Plus production cut. Uh, several of the world's largest oil exporters have said they're cutting their production levels, which has caused caused a leap in crude prices. That's Saudi Arabia, Iraq, several Gulf states cutting supplies by 1 million barrels of oil a day. And Russia, their fellow member in OPEC, in the OPEC Plus group, extending its cut of half a million barrels per day until the end of the year. Um, add that all up. I mean, I think what was really interesting here is, is that it came as a surprise. And we were curious about what, when you throw that all into the mix, what does it mean for you? Uh, Richard Masson is an executive fellow with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and Chief Commercial Officer for Fractal Systems and Chair of the World Petroleum Council of Canada. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Richard. Good to be here, Ben. So this did come as a, I mean, it's, you know, I, I try to follow this as much as possible, but the OPEC cuts always seem to come as a, OPEC's movements don't seem to surprise many. This one did. What was going on? You know, I think it was uh, the Saudis probably saying that they didn't like the way the market was setting up. There's a lot of companies that trade oil. Um, they do that through financial futures. And, you know, if they start to go short, if they think that there's going to be an oversupply, they, they can kind of put pressure on the market and it kind of turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so when the Saudis, you know, leading this uh, movement surprised the market, suddenly all these folks who were short the market had to go cover their positions is what it's called. And so they, they end up buying back a lot of these futures contracts in a hurry and you get a big price spike. And that's what happened, you know, $5 uh, in a day. And so that kind of says to those traders, you better be a little bit more careful and not try and get ahead of uh, where the OPEC folks want the market to go, because if you do, you're going to get your fingers burned. Interesting. So it really has nothing to do with the whole process of pumping oil out of the ground. Well, they, they are quite able to decide how much they want to sell, and, and they want to make sure that they protect some kind of price band. They never say what that price band is, but when the you know financial markets were, were weak because of um, the Silicon Valley Bank situation, then right. it suddenly looked like maybe the economy was going to get weak, and so oil prices went down below whatever bottom end of that price band they, they wanted, and suddenly they said, okay, we're going to take action and get us back up, and boom, it happened. It certainly did. I mean, it happened very quickly. Uh, how did it settle down through the rest of the week? Did it stay there? It stayed, right? So, so oil jumped up about five bucks, and it's now in the eighty-dollar range, and it settled in that range. Uh, I would say a lot of people expect oil prices to go higher over the course of the year. We're still trying to force Russia out of the market. We're still trying to understand how that's working because one of the challenges for Russia is they can put oil on tankers. They used to have short trips from their ports to Europe to deliver that oil. Now they have to take that oil much farther towards India or China. And the tankers take twice as long or three times as long to make the trip. There are no more tankers in the world than there were before. So if the tankers take longer, it means less oil is going to get shipped. We're all trying to sort out what does that mean, but it's going to take a few months for us to see that. So Russia is likely to be able to deliver less oil just because they can't get it to market. 
And now Saudi and the Middle East countries are saying, okay, we're also going to cut production. With all that happening by the summer when we get into the driving season and with China coming out of COVID, it's likely that we're going to see rising prices. Yeah, it's been hard to hard to I mean for the for someone for the outsider, it's been really hard to predict because all of a sudden, uh, with with talk of maybe a recession and so forth, things came back down into the seventy dollar range, and that was a bit strange. I guess I mean ultimately, what does this mean for us? I mean, that's always the important question for Canadians. I, I would suspect that eighty dollars is good for Alberta. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, you know, the industry across the country can can make good cash flow at this kind of price level, and just to put it in context. Last year, in 2022, the industry generated about a quarter trillion dollars of revenue, so $240 billion of revenue, which was a record year by far. This year, the industry, um, this is based on ARC Financial uh, Research Institute, is, is forecast to generate $150-plus billion of revenue, the second best year ever. And so that's really important because companies have used that to pay down debt, you know, you might recall debt interest is is deductible. So if you don't have as much debt, you don't have as many interest deductions, you have to pay higher taxes. And they're paying taxes and royalties like crazy because they don't have as much debt and they're not spending a lot of money on new drilling or new projects that are deductible. And so they don't have many deductions. And so all this extra revenue they make, a lot of it goes right to the government, about 50% of it goes right to the government through taxes and royalties. It's it's been strange. I mean, this is not a new topic, but it's been strange that they haven't been reinvesting more. And I guess that speaks to some longer term jitters in in the market, right? That they're not pouring as much money back into uh, to reinvestment as they did in the past. Yes, it does. It's it's you know their investors have been saying we're worried about you know the future of how do we get to net zero? You know, how do we do that uh, cost effectively? And also short-term things. Like we don't have the pipeline access that we need to get to market. Trans Mountain is still not complete. The costs have gone up dramatically. And, you know, we just don't, you know, the pipelines are essentially full here for the last five or six years, which doesn't give people confidence to invest in new projects if you don't know that you can get that, that oil to market effectively. So there's a whole bunch of things that have been holding holding us back. My argument has been we need to address some of those things because we are trying to get Russia out of the market. We don't want to be reliant on them as a supplier going forward. And Canada is one of the most reliable suppliers. There was a poll out this week that confirmed one of the preferred suppliers of oil and gas for the world. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw that. I mean, I, th- I think what's happened here is, is a lot of other countries are able to jump in and fill that. Well, well, it, well Europe makes this what seems like a pretty fast transition um you know it looks like other countries are jumping into that void especially when it comes to to natural gas where canada could have been but if but we had seen this coming uh earlier or at least moved faster exactly and projects like the cedar project in uh, prince rupert that was announced recently is is i think the lowest emission lng project in the world lng canada is also lower than almost every other project so in canada we can do things very well if we kind of get out of our way and, and let ourselves do it, if we don't do it, then somebody else will. It'll be it'll be um, you know Iran or Kuwait or somebody like that. Yeah, certainly. I, how about the impact at the, at the pumps? Because I know Canadians are always most when when uh, when they see a spike in oil, crude oil prices, it doesn't always hit right right at the pumps right away. It tends to. It doesn't tend to come down as fast. Needless to say, uh, but what impact could this have going? I mean, you mentioned it. It could be a could be a, a, an expensive summer and already with inflation. Uh, and then we'll talk about the carbon tax in a second. But uh, but it could be a pretty pricey summer for getting around this year. Uh, you know, it, it's quite likely it will be, in my my opinion, because I think the general level of investment in oil projects in the world has been lower than it needed to be for the past few years. And so the spare capacity has been coming out of the system little by little. And on top of that, there were some refineries that closed during COVID when, when demand went down, the weak refineries Two or three of them in North America closed, some, some in the other parts of the world. So the refineries that are still there have a bit more market power and they're able to make sure that they make good margins um, because there's not as much competition. And so both those things together are likely to lead to upward pressure on prices. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, on the LNG front, it just feels like, I mean, I was, we were paying attention to Joe Biden's visit. Uh, clearly, there, was, there weren't many signals there that would give much confidence to this speeding up any faster. I mean, certainly nothing on Keystone that didn't really come up. Uh, he was asked about it. But, uh, but didn't really address it in any real way. So it, it doesn't feel like there's going to be any movement on that front either. I don't think Keystone is ever coming back. It's been killed twice. I can't imagine yeah. anybody wanting to resurrect that one. Richard Masson, Chief Commercial Officer of Fractal Systems and the Chair of the World Petroleum Council of Canada is with us this half hour. We've been talking about uh, energy prices in general. OPEC made a surprise cut over the weekend uh, that drove uh, the price of oil up by about $5 a barrel uh, this past week. And then on April 1st, last Saturday, the carbon tax came in as well. Um, what kind of impact will that have? I mean, it's it's because it, it varies by province, but, but certainly that's going to be another upward pressure on gas prices for Canadian consumers this summer. Absolutely. It's, you know, designed to put incremental pressure on consumers each year for the next few years until we get to 2030. So it's 14 cents a litre now, and it's headed towards 37 cents a litre by 2030. And the whole idea is for some people that gets pretty darned expensive, and so they're supposed to change their behaviour, drive less, buy a smaller car, get an electric vehicle, whatever they need to do to to reduce their consumption of, of gasoline or diesel, those type of things. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 a significant addition on top of uh, the volatility we were talking about a few minutes ago. Right. Uh, the province, just to be clear, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Yukon, and Nunavut, uh, that applies to, and then it comes into effect in Labrador, Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, and PEI on July the 1st. Other provinces, of course, have their own carbon pricing structures in place uh, already. Uh, you know, the the parliamentary budget officer put out a report uh, this week that has, had, has a lot of people talking and a lot of people very confused about exactly, I don't know if he had managed to have a look at it, about what it costs individual Canadians in terms of how much money they get back in rebates, how much money they're going to spend. And it really left uh, some questions out there. I mean, it's hard to figure out what 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 what's real out there. And I think the problem with all that is the way it's been communicated. No one really understands what this all means. I think part of the challenge is, you know, it's, Averages, you, you know, you take an average person and who, who is that fictional average person and you assume, okay, how much are they are going to drive? How much do they need to heat their house? And you say, okay, well, that's what they're going to spend in carbon tax. And then in each of these provinces, the rebate level is different. And so if somebody does a calculation on that, the, the parliamentary budget officer looked at that and said, yes, but there's also economic impacts of, of the carbon tax going up lower economic growth, you know, which takes, you know, maybe lower wages because of that and adds all those things in and said, you know, fewer people are going to be coming out ahead in the near term than, than what the federal government have been saying. So, yeah, it is. I think it's very confusing and it really depends on the individual situation. You know, are you living on the edge of town driving into work every day or do you live in an apartment downtown where, where you hardly ever have to drive? These These things make a huge difference to you know, your situation right away before you even actually have to take any kind of real action. Yeah, and I was interested in looking at the PBO report, of course, that they didn't factor in not doing anything, right? I mean, that the, the idea is, okay, if not the carbon tax, then what and how much would that cost? So, I mean, it's become very much a political issue. We all know that, but it's been hard to try and figure out. I mean, I see so many people arguing about about the cost of it versus, you know, the, the versus the benefits of it, that it feels like we've kind of fallen into some sort of rabbit hole where we'll never figure out whether people will just believe what they want to believe at this point. Right. And I think, you, you know, what we all need to understand is the point of all this is we're trying to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we, we make as an economy. And the way that we have to do that is to have consumers change their behavior because consumers are a big part of the economy. Right. So the point of the carbon tax is so that we do feel pain and it's enough pain for us to say, we're not going to drive as much. You know, maybe we're not going to take the kids to, to this, or maybe we're not going to put up Christmas lights because of the cost of that. You know, these kind of things that energy that is discretionary are the things we can change, or we can invest some of our money to buy better equipment, you know, better windows, better insulation, you know, better car with lower emissions, whether it's electric or, or a, a newer car, those type of things. All those things are what we need to do as Canadians in order to lower our greenhouse gas footprint, and the carbon tax is supposed to incent us to do that. Right. 
at the same time, we've been told again and again that that this will be sort of there'll be a, a net loss. There won't be any net loss here. We'll get back what we're spending. I guess that's where the calculation has gotten very hard because clearly some people will get more money back. The government looks like they're going to federal government looks like they're going to come out in the red on this because they're giving out more money than they're taking in. But again, it's been that doesn't that that won't make anybody feel much better when they're paying it when they're making those decisions that you just described. Because the two things aren't connected, right? You're going to get back yeah. that same amount of money if you reduce your carbon footprint, you get to put it in the bank or, or use it for things that you need, like in groceries these days. Right. So the, the, you still feel the pain of the higher carbon tax, and it's supposed to incent you to, to reduce, change your behavior. And if people understand that by 2030, that carbon tax is going to be 37 cents a liter, so they can start planning, okay, so how long is this car that I have going to last? Should I move closer to work? All those kind of things where you can start to make decisions now so that you can avoid that 37 cents a liter uh, charge, you know, a few years down the road. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen to it. Uh, clearly, in the last budget, there's been attempts to try to get it to stick, regardless of who's in power. Uh, we'll, see if, we'll see if that works out or not. It's hugely unpopular in Alberta, obviously. Well, you know, it is and it isn't because, you know, in Alberta, the economy is so much driven by the oil industry and the oil industry is kind of on board with the carbon tax because they're trying to make multi-billion dollar investments to reduce their carbon footprint, right? And so if the carbon tax is something they're counting on, if they think it's going to be there, then they can invest a bunch of money right now to avoid paying it later. But if it goes away after they've invested a bunch of billions of dollars, then their shareholders say, well, what the heck did you just do? And that's where we end up in this discussion around contracts for differences that says if a different government takes away the carbon tax, you've got to compensate the companies who invested the billions of dollars doing what the government wanted them to do in the first place. So that's that's not at a consumer level. That's more at at an industrial level. but, But in Alberta, many people, I think, understand that. Yeah, they need the stability, right? They need the the predictability. The predictability, right? And it's it's the same thing with the big industrial projects, the LNG projects we were talking about earlier. We we need those um, for for multi, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of investment to happen. We need to have enough regulatory certainty around this that we can plan, you know, 10 or 15 years out what it's going to look like. And so there have been, you know, really encouraging announcements around, you know, like there was a cement plant in Edmonton that's going to put in carbon capture, billion plus dollar project. That's the kind of thing that we can see if we've got the right incentive system in place. Richard Masson, thank you so much for your time on, on this Thursday night. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries, Ben. It's good to talk to you. Scroll through TikTok and you're sure to see Ozempic. Some now calling it the skinny pen a drug developed to treat diabetes that's become known for its side effect, weight loss. But there's another side effect to its soaring popularity, shortages. And now diabetics are calling out people just using it to drop a few pounds. Shane Anthony was diagnosed with diabetes four years ago. It really makes me mad. It infuriates me. And it's like, you people don't need it. Us, the diabetics, we need it. We need it to stay alive. Yeah, there's been a lot of controversy around, a lot of buzz around Ozempic to begin with, and a lot of controversy around it. Uh, what it boils down to, and there's something, there's been a development in this story late today. Uh, Nova Scotia's College of Physicians has suspended the license of a doctor who allegedly signed more than 17 thousand prescriptions in the span of just three months for that diabetes drug, Ozempic. Um, uh, The prescriptions were filled in Canada and mostly sent to U.S. patients. The reason we'd heard about this is because uh, it was, the alarm was raised really here in BC. So just a little background here. Uh, Ozempic was a drug developed to treat diabetes. It became known for its weight loss side effects and is surging in popularity, particularly south of the border. And that demand has seen some look to this side of the border to access the drug because, of course, it's much cheaper. Uh, Reports say one month of Ozempic costs around $300 here. It's a third of what it costs in some American states. Now, prescription drugs, of course, are cheaper here because a federal agency sets the maximum price a company could charge for those drugs as opposed to the U.S. where the drug companies get to decide, and obviously this drug is in big demand. Um, But all of this raised red flags here in B.C. where the health ministry had figured out that thousands of people in the U.S. have been getting their Ozempic this year from pharmacies in this province. 
BC's Health Minister Adrian Dick says that nearly one in five Ozempic prescriptions in BC went to American residents in the first two months of the year alone. Um, upwards of 15% of Ozempic prescriptions in BC were being filled for American patients, so 15%. By comparison, less than half of a percent of other drugs in BC were being prescribed to non-residents. You can see the trend here. And that, of course, prompted BC to announce a restriction on sales to non-Canadian residents to avoid local shortages of the diabetes medication. Uh, and then tonight, we found out from Nova Scotia that one uh, doctor who had been prescribing a lot, 17,000 prescriptions in just three months has been suspended. Uh, this is in the Globe and Mail today or tonight. Dr. Gus Grant, a registrar, chief executive officer of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Nova Scotia, said in a statement that based on volume alone, the prescribing is not in keeping with the standards of the profession. I cannot see how the volume of medications prescribed could possibly be supported by proper medical assessment and judgment on its face. The prescribing appears incompetent. We'll see how that plays out. Back here in BC, though, I mean, the health minister here, Adrian Dix, was thanking Nova Scotia for having made this move. They were calling on uh, other provinces to get on board with this. But what exactly is going on with Ozempic? Is there any risk of a shortage here? Is it is it just preemptive or are we really on the verge of something uh, a bit dangerous? Joining me now with more on that is Dr. Tom Elliott. He is medical director of BC Diabetes. Dr. Elliott, thank you. Ben, it's great to be on your show. Tell me a bit about this Ozempic stuff, because all of a sudden it's in the news. It was mentioned on the Oscars. It's uh, it's become a trend. Well, Ben, Ozempic is the trade name of a drug called semaglutide, and it is the most powerful medication we have for type 2 diabetes and for obesity. It was, it was developed as a drug for diabetes. Uh, and it's been found that whether you have diabetes or not, it is a powerful weight loss agent. It's safe. It's covered by BC Pharmacare and, and, and in most provincial authorities across the country. And it's very effective. It's a very big part of my life as, as a medical director of a, of a diabetes clinic in Vancouver. And of course, I look after people who have simple obesity as well. So it's a drug that I use a lot. I've prescribed more than 2,000 times. It's worthy of discussion. The, the advertisements you see on television are, are accurate. It's, it's highly effective. Understanding in all this that its primary use, at least, I mean, one of its primary purposes is to treat type 2 diabetes. And if there's a finite supply of it, you don't want it suddenly being bought up by those who are simply using it as a weight loss drug. That is the concern. I'm not concerned about supply because the the manufacturer, Nova Nordisk, is you know is a multinational corporation. It's uh, I'm quite confident it can ramp up uh, supply so that uh, no one goes without. H having said that, the stats we heard last week from the BC Minister of Health that that I think 14% of the province's supplies were being sent by mail order from Vancouver pharmacies to to the US. It, it was a surprise. And, and concern. Well, certainly because if you look at the stats, uh, it was 15%, I think, of Ozempic prescriptions in BC were being filed for American patients. For every other drug, it was less than half a percent. So there's a, there's something going on here. Yeah. So, so, so listen, what, what I think is going on is it's, it's the market. You've got our huge neighbor to the south with 10 times the population of Canada with drug costs that are way higher than ours. And they've spotted an opportunity. So the drug is cheaper here. Why not try and get it here? How do they go about getting it here then? Because, I mean, I realize there's, this is not a new subject and Ozempic is not the first drug that has found uh, ready consumers south of the border. But uh, how, how, are, how are they going about getting accessing this drug here for the prices that we charge? Well, I, I believe that, you, that, that there are clinics... They're probably all the way across Canada, but the, 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 the culprit clinics are in Nova Scotia where you've got physicians who, who see patients virtually by, you know, by Zoom, just like you and I are talking, or by telephone, and, and the patient asks for a prescription for, for Ozempic. So the, the Nova Scotia physician sends a, a prescription to the pharmacy uh, designated by the patient and it happens to be one of these one of these Vancouver-based mail order pharmacies, and they ship it off. 
you know, as a physician, of course, there's, there's, there's always liability treating patients outside, uh, you know, non-residents of Canada. There's some risk involved. The physicians know that, that they've taken the risk. They're charging whatever is required. And the pharmacy in Vancouver is, is uh, dispensing the prescription. Right. I, I, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it's following the rules, is it not? I think so, yeah. But back to Ozempic here, I mean, I think the concern, and certainly the health minister in uh, BC uh, voiced this, uh, the concern is here that there are not finite supplies of this stuff and that uh, we've seen other shortages over time uh, in other ph- with other pharmaceuticals, although you mentioned this one you're not worried about, uh, but that there is sort of a sense of, of fair play here and, 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 and that maybe this is not such a great idea to be feeding this, this, the voracious appetite, no pun intended, of the American market for this obesity drug. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right and I think the minister's right. I don't think it's a problem. It's really just supply and demand, and, and the manufacturer's got a, got a safe and very effective drug, and uh, they're going to distribute it as necessary. Right. So if you're a type 2 diabetes patient, uh, whether it be in BC or elsewhere in Canada, you, you don't think this is cause for concern because people will read this and think, ah, you know, they're, they're a finite supply of this medication, this vital medication is being, uh, is being sent, sent to the U.S. for people who don't really need it. You know, type 2 diabetes is common. The, the primary treatment is lifestyle. It's to, if you're overweight, eat less and exercise more. You'll lose weight. As you lose weight, your insulin will work better. You've got diabetes because you're getting older, your, your, your hair's going gray, you're getting wrinkles, your muscle cells are dying off, and the cells that make insulin are dying off as well. So you don't have as much insulin, but if you are a leaner package uh, and, and eating low-carb, then your, your sugars are going to be way better controlled. So that's the primary therapy, eating less, going with low-carb, low-glycemic index, avoiding white food unless it's cauliflower or fish. And then if you haven't got to target, you add medication. If you're overweight, then the drug of choice is undoubtedly ozempic. It, it, it's, it's given by injection, Ben. We start with a, a small dose. We double it every four weeks. About 10% of people can't take it. Because of, because of nausea and vomiting, but the other 90% do very well. Right. Um, Ozempic, there's a, there's a pill form of Ozempic, which has a trade name of Ribelsis. And in the United States, there is a, a version that's 2.4 times stronger, same drug, just 2.4 times as much for obesity alone, that is called Wegovi. We don't have Wegovi yet. We, we just have Ozempic. If you look at what um, BC is proposing, then they want the, they want this to be stemmed. Though they, the province of BC was the first one to step out and say the federal regulators have to try and curb this because there isn't enough supply. The trend is in that direction," uh, said Adrian Dix, the health minister, towards, yeah. towards not having enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I take that with a grain of salt. I've, I've not heard of any shortages. You know, there was first mention of it in in late November of last year. Uh, but it never eventuated. So I, I, as, as I mentioned, I've got many hundreds, even thousands of patients on this drug, and I've never heard of a problem with them uh, getting access. Well, Dr. Elliot, thank you so much for, uh, for shedding some light on this. Good. Th- thanks a lot. It's great to, great to be on your show. Bye-bye. You may have seen this yesterday. Johnson & Johnson has proposed to pay almost $12 billion Canadian to resolve tens of thousands of lawsuits it faces in North America that claim its baby powder and other talc-based products caused cancer. Uh, we wanted There are, of course, plaintiffs here in Canada. We wanted to find out more about it. And so we asked lawyer Jill McCartney, who's a partner with Siskins, specializing in health law and class actions, and James Boyd, an associate of hers with Siskins, who represents a group. They both represent a group of Canadian plaintiffs. Jill, thank you. And James. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. So perhaps just a background, a bit, a bit about how we got here, because I think people are very familiar with the product, but maybe not as familiar with what's happened over the past several years in terms of these class action suits. It's a, a well-known product, talcum baby powder. And what's happened over quite a long period of time is there's been growing knowledge about a link with this product and certain types of cancer. And so in terms of the litigation story, it's 
obviously multifaceted. There's litigation in the US. There's class actions filed in Canada. There's also lawyers like ourselves that we have various individuals, so quite a number of individuals who have retained us to represent their individual interests in and amongst all of this for injuries that they've sustained from, uh, they allege, due to this type of baby powder. Without going into detail, I know you can't talk about your clients too specifically, but but in terms of what the what a case would look like, what is the, what are the allegations here in terms of the damage the product is alleged to have done? Sure. I, I mean, like the typical call that we would get is someone who's often, you know, people will use it after showers to help absorb moisture or, or what have you. And they use it for a long, continued period of time with regularity. And the type of injury then that comes to light is various types of gynecological cancer. So we have clients that have ovarian cancer, we have clients that have cervical cancer, so all sorts of different types of cancer that they're contending with after having a history of using baby powder for a long period of time. And the allegations center around a product within the talc, right? Talc is, it's, it's got a story behind it, right? Because it's mined in proximity to asbestos. Right. And so asbestos is a well-known carcinogen. And when they're mined together, there can be contamination. So as between asbestos and talc, there's, there's a link to cancer-related injuries. Has this ever been, I mean, I know that the company itself denies this. Uh, they say there is no link. Has it ever been established uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is true? Or is, is this something that is still being uh, investigated and debated? So uh, we haven't had any trials on our cases yet. Mm-hmm. And so what we're using is there, there's various literature on it. And there certainly is literature that supports the allegations that there is a link between the product and cancer. I mean, and, and obviously these cases, there's been further litigation in the States, but it, it, obviously you have two parties that are making, well, numerous plaintiffs, but you know, it, it's a, it's a common defendant and there's obviously arguments being made on both sides. And, and the product itself was uh, the company finally pulled the product. Did they not, not that long ago? Yeah, so the the product um, was discontinued globally in 2022, but it had been uh, discontinued in North America two years prior in 2020. They do continue to sell a version of baby powder. It just no longer has talc as an ingredient. So what exactly have they offered and what has the reaction been from from people on this side of the border? There was an, an initial bankruptcy filing from a subsidiary to J&J and, and that had gone through the court system and been dismissed. And so then what's happened, there's been another bankruptcy filing. And as part of that, there's a proposal for resolving this litigation. What's happened in the States in terms of the bankruptcy by this subsidiary that our understanding from the processes there is that the subsidiary has the liabilities for the talc powder. And this is part, this is baked into a new bankruptcy proposal. So they allocate an amount with the bankruptcy proceedings, things are stayed. You know, depending on on where you're reading about what's coming out of the states, you can see that, you know, there's an amount allocated, it's over a period of time. And in a bankruptcy proceeding, there's still, it's just part. So it's not, it's a proposal within the bankruptcy proceeding to try to take care of these people that have claims as against J&J for injuries related to baby powder. So it in no way is a settlement of the claims, right? It is simply a way of, of, of a subsidiary that, that has all the liability in these cases to try to put up an amount of money that would, I suppose, at the end of it, do would do away with all these cases. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it's a proposal, right? So it, it's, a, it's a step towards, but it, it's, it's not set up for claims to just be submitted and made yet. It's an intention. And so, but it still has to anything that would happen. Again, my understanding of the U.S. procedure is that there would need to be a process for uh, claimants to participate and and look at what the proposal is. And then a bankruptcy court would have to review it and approve it. So right. it's news. It's, it's certainly progress on, on what's going. They've, they've certainly upped the amount that was originally uh, put into the bankruptcy process is my understanding. It's not, we're not there yet. You're not there yet. And I gather within this too, uh, one of the elements of this is Johnson & Johnson does not um, does not have any, accept any responsibility here, that this is part of a bankruptcy process, the money is out there to settle these claims. Uh, but what I was reading is that their argument is that it would all cost them too much money, therefore they just want to make it all go away without actually admitting any wrongdoing. Those were the things that I took away from the statement that they had up online as well. 
And I guess when 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 someone from outside of this looks in and thinks, well, okay, what's what's the impact here? What does this actually mean? So I suppose if you could sum up and say, okay, here we are. It's it's you know it's the fifth of April, twenty twenty three. This amount of money seems to be on the table, but not exactly in uh, in the way we might expect it to be. What does this mean for those Canadians out there who claim to have been harmed by this product? I think what it means is that if you've developed a gynecological cancer after prolonged use of the product, that you should be in contact with a lawyer uh, who's representing people with these types of claims to make sure that you are having your claim looked at and reviewed for the possibility of processing or participating in any such process for people that have claims. Because it, it takes time to understand and get a claim ready if there is some sort of a process to submit them in. Yeah, I, I mean, what an ubiquitous product, though. I mean, it, it's hard to know where to start with this one at times. I, I realize that you've described already what the what the allegations are from those who say they were harmed by this product. But this was a product that was in almost every home, I mean, almost every home in the country for a very, very long time. Where do you begin? Well, I mean, begin in terms of like trying to get the word out to people that have potential injuries is where it's you need to have been using the product for uh, an extended period of time. And so if you have that usage and then have developed a gynecological cancer, that's when you're going to want to be reaching out to to a lawyer to to talk to see if if your claim would potentially be included in any potential resolution. I mean, we have a lot of clients that are significantly injured and it's it's uh, impacting them, you know, it's, it's, you know, every day and uh, significant injuries. So w- when stuff like this comes out, obviously, you know, they're looking to get um, information and guidance. Right. Well, Jill and James, thank you for the update. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ben.